I honestly think that as soon as a stablecoin bill passes Congress, you will see a massive dramatic shift within like two to five years of, of like US converting from current financial systems to crypto based ones. Everyone knows this technology is better, it's easier, like all the APIs are easier and like we can start actually using this technologies, I think it'll explode. Welcome to the 1000X podcast. We've got a very special guest for everybody today, Tolly, one of the founders of Solana. And why do we have a guest this week? Well, because Jonah managed to make every single holder of Solana extremely irate a few days ago by drunk tweeting, in his words, why Solana is completely fucked. And so we wanted to have a conversation here to figure out, is that true? Is Solana completely fucked? But first... I kind of want to figure out, Jono, <laughs> where did that tweet come from? Yeah. So first of all, Tolly, thank you for being such a mature, good steward of your ecosystem and responding to me in, you know, technical, sure. thoughtful ways. <laughs> and, you know, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast to discuss. Let me give you a little bit of an apologetic background. So. I was on vacation with my wife in Rome. The kids were somewhere else, you know, with their grandparents. Yeah, I had one of those those sort of nights that you you really don't get a lot when you're a parent. So, you know, I had a nice bottle of wine, feeling pretty happy about myself and that, you know, my 24 hours of freedom. Now, my wife's pretty sick of listening to me talk about crypto. So after she passed out, I was like, you know what? I don't know if Solana's <laughs> going to perform as well as ETH will in the next year. Let me talk to the internet about that. And you don't, you, you, no one cares what you say on the internet if you're not a little bit extreme. So I could have said, hey, Saul Eath is going to underperform a little bit if these things happen. But instead, I kind of went for it. I, I went aggressive, fell asleep. <laughs> I wake up and now literally everyone who still cares about crypto wants to fucking kill me. Uh, so <laughs> for everybody out there, if you want to make people mad, suggest that Solana is in trouble. Oh, uh, man, I, uh, I am a dad myself and... I wouldn't spend my 24 hours free without <laughs> from the kids thinking about crypto. <laughs> uh, I would, this is, I would, this is why you are something you else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I appreciate that I was, you know, like, you know, that you had time to think about Solana. Um, first of all, I hope like everyone that's listening can be like mature about these things. It's just the internet, people should post. If you ever actually meet those folks, even the worst shit posters and crypto Twitter, if you meet them, they're all nice people that you would totally be normally friends with and like grab beers or whatever. That's your thing. So like, I hope people always can step back whenever they get like too emotional into in these discussions and just like, this is just literally people arguing about software <laughs> uh <laughs> and i'm i'm not even that i have no business arguing about software yeah. like i can write some crappy python and i think the most technical thing i ever did was write the electronic music for this podcast but let me let me ask you a very simple question for non-technical folks out there about solana what what is the in a world where there's probably a little bit too much block space relative to the demand for crypto use cases right now? What um, what what's sort of the vision behind creating the world's fastest, cheapest blockchain? Like what what use cases are you targeting with this? 
Um, there's this like, this is like a, a really good question because we don't know, like, at what point is the market saturated with block space? Are there use cases that are like unlocked at subset transactions that are worthwhile for anyone? There might be, there might not. There's some indication of that. You look at like IoT stuff like Helium and HiveMapper. It would be really, really tough to do it in any other environment unless it's completely centralized running on a database. You kind of need like something like Solana for those. Um, but could the world create those services in a completely centralized manner and be fine? And no, but and like life goes on, right? Like that. That's like another question. But like I think there is this like general belief, similar to people building open source software in the '90s, that like. I think if we build these systems in the decentralized way, they'll create more value in the long term for everyone else. Just like you could argue Windows has better features, as good as Linux, yada, yada, yada. But like for some reason in the 90s, I was motivated to spend my weekends working on open source software because I thought that it would be like a major benefit to myself as an engineer and to like the greater public and to all the other engineers I work with. So there's something to that. I think similarly, like if we can build decentralized systems, the hope is that they're less likely to get co-opted and turned into like the shitty version of the web that we have today. Like if Facebook was decentralized, if Google was decentralized, if all these like things were decentralized from the start, they might not suck as much, right? Like you might not have your data stolen all the time and sold. And like, there's a bunch of benefits that come from that like diffusion of power and like robustness and reliability and like that's the hope right and like every person has the option to go work at like everyone in crypto that's like building stuff they're solving real hard engineering problems they all have the option to go work at facebook google netflix microsoft earn close to a million dollars a year and just not give a shit <laughs> for some reason they're choosing to do this some may choose it for the upside, but a lot of people are choosing it because it's more fun. Like you actually feel like you're fighting the David versus Goliath battle, right? Like you get to like push the hard technology forward. It's just more enjoyable for like a life's career goal to do that than to go like work on a giant Java database to optimize ads for Google, even though probably you'd make more money and have better work-life balance and your kids spend more time with the kids right like but like we're here right like we're trying to do something interesting so in that sense like there is like a lot of faith in that like if we build the system and what i'm what i'm what am i good at i'm good at making things like hyper optimized and like efficient if i apply all my talents into this and like make a really hyper efficient lowest latency, cheapest cost blockchain, I think it'll open up new use cases and could be very disruptive. And that's cool. I don't know what it's going to be worth, right? Like if, if Solana is worth like one tenth of what it is today, we just have smaller validators and features that take longer to ship because there'd be fewer core developers, but there'd still be people that are like, holy shit, this is fun to work on. I'm going to keep going at it. That's the only difference, right? Like I, the rest is kind of like up to the the gods you know like I, pmf is really really hard to find really hard to predict so what happens is, is really really tough to know like in the future that, that's actually something that i wanted to 
ask about is that that last little part there. Is it important to you to build in ways to generate value for Solana? It's like with ETH, right? They basically made the decision, we're going to introduce EIP-1559 specifically so that ETH could derive more value from activity on the chain. Is that something that you view as important? All all proof of stake networks, no matter how the tokens move inside the black box, all derive value the exact same way. There is a resource that people want, and if people want it enough in a short enough time, they will try to access it. And no, whether you have a burn or not, it doesn't really matter. Because even without the burn, people bid up the fees, validators earn more rewards. That means that owning ETH to get more stake, to be a block producer more often, burns higher rewards. It's the same loop. doesn't matter if it's burned or not. It's a nice meme to have it, the deflationary meme. And that's cool. But 1559 exists for a more technical reason. It's to prevent spam attacks in the ledger. doesn't really matter. Like if you, if you took away that technical reason, the value accrual to the Ethereum network is exactly the same. It's from like people demanding access to block space and like bidding for it just to such to such heights that it's significant. Um, now that's harder for that to occur on Solana because we have localized fee markets and that's slowly happening in Ethereum because L2s are separating state and each L2 has its own fee markets. So you can think of each L2 as kind of this generic blob that has its own fees. Those fees now don't really accrue to Ethereum outside of like the L2 data fees. So like you're already seeing kind of this happening in Ethereum. Um, and a question, the question that everyone should have in their mind at some point, I don't know when Ethereum will also fix its block space problem. And it's block space is going to be much, much higher, probably to the point that the fees to access the data itself, just submitting bytes to the network are kind of commoditized. There should be like no more than like, you know, two, three X the cost of the hardware, maybe five X, but like a small multiple of the cost of the hardware. Hardware is really cheap, like really, really cheap. <laughs> That's interesting because I remember, uh, you know, in the early days of Solana, the hardware to run a validator was super expensive, right? Like what would it cost? What, what was the cost of one box? Yeah, when we started, it was about 1,100 a month. Then it dropped to 800. Now it's about 35, uh, 350. My guess is within a year, probably sub 200 a month. Um, what? So let's say that Fire Dancer ships and it's a big success. What What will it cost to run a run a validator? Yeah, Fire Dancer is far more efficient than the Labs client. So we'll see like what it actually how it actually performs. But the problem is that like you're also like when you get like a box at a data center, you're paying for the machine, the cores, the memory, and the bandwidth and the electricity. And like the cost of the cores and that kind of stuff where efficiency of the code has the highest impact is like one quarter of the overall cost, right? So like Fire Dancer could be like 10 times more efficient. The price of that box drops by like 20%, right? <laughs> That's it, right? Like, so, so you get, like you get some benefits, but not all the benefits. So you need like, it, it's like a Amdell's law kind of problem. When you have like a bunch of things to optimize, you make one, the cost of one zero, the other things become the dominant factors and you don't see like the same improvement across the overall thing, right? Um, the, I 
it would be really awesome to see once Fire Dancer's out, uh, what kind of performance they could get on the same hardware. And I suspect it's going to be much, much better, but we'll see. Um, so what I'm excited about, like Fire Dancer coming out is obviously safety. We have two clients, most of the top validators that have a lot of stake. The hardware costs to them are insignificant. Uh, they should be running both clients at the same time and like one primary, one secondary. So if there's a bug in one, they fail over to the other one. That's a massive improvement in re reliability. If they diverge on state, they halt. That means there's a like a system-wide bug, hopefully that never happens. But that's like, I will be able to sleep at night because we go from like catastrophic safety bugs being like a potential like death of the network to just being a liveness issue. Low suck, but those are recover recoverable from. Um, again, hopefully it never happens, but like that's that's a massive, massive improvement. And like once you have two clients, it's easier to build a third and a fourth, and there's already a team working on the third one. Very quickly, um, you know, those Fire Dancer is being built by a trading company. It's being built by Jump. Yep. I've never worked at Jump, but you know, I've worked at Goldman, I've worked at VTOL, I've worked at DRW. Like I, I know that trading companies are not altruistic entities, and I know how they operate. They're pretty Machiavellian. So, how let let's say that Fire Dancer is a huge technical success, and it decreases the cost of block space, and everything that you just mentioned works smoothly. And suddenly, you know, machines all over the world are running Fire Dancer, and it's it's the go-to validator client for Solana. Solana. How should users feel about the fact that the go-to software validating blocks is you know control or invented by a company that's clearly got some incentive, right, uh, to to build this? They're not doing it for free. Yeah. So th this is what's cool. The trading companies are actually like are mutually aligned with the idea of a giant transparent state machine that would be competing with the centralized exchanges. So when you like right now connect to NASDAQ to get like high performance connection, you got to pay them an arm and a leg. Every trade and everything you submit, like you, you can keep track of your data, but they keep all the data and then they charge you to, to get the data back. <laughs> So you pay them an arm and a leg to connect. You pay them an arm and a leg to read the data. And it's available only to like the top traders. And to, to be part of that network, it's very expensive. And it's not, it's opaque. It's transparent to them. This is an open system run by volunteers. It means that like anyone in the world that pays for a hunk of metal can go and connect and be in the same level playing field as jump. And to them, that's great. They just have more competition that they get to compete in an open environment. Their connectivity is free, right? It's the hunk of metal. The data is available to everyone. They get to like grind out a profit based on their like algorithms and, and like know-how and stuff like that. Without this additional man in the middle, this NASDAQ or NYSE that's taking a rate. That's a huge win for every trading company. So in a lot of ways, like this was- so they're doing this to track volume the network basically they're they're doing this because the vision is aligned with with removing a man an extractive man in the middle in finance which is like the centralized entities that run markets it'd be better if they were all decentralized markets because that's an open space where they're competing without paying these like astronomical fees to like what value does does like an exchange provide it's just a bunch of boxes somewhere that the you connect to right that's it 
Like, why do they get to make so much money for running a market? Like, you got to ask yourself that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, exchanges are, jump, are very valuable businesses. But, but, but like, they don't, jump. they don't take any risk. And like, Jump actually takes capital and risks it, right? They like try to synthesize all, all of the world's information and predict the future. That's really, really hard. And exchange doesn't do that. They just run a market and say, here, I'm going to take a trade from you and a trade from you, and I'm going to take a cut in the middle. <laughs> you guys do all the work, I get paid, right? Like the, this is like, if this works, right? If we can get a decentralized system to be basically like bound by physics, like we remove all the bottlenecks and Solana is now like globally distributed information is propagating it at the speed of light. It would there would be no arbitrage between the state on Solana and state on Nasdaq, like that's a really really cool outcome. So like that's that's the dream, that's the goal. I think that's aligned with Jump because it will literally cut costs for them. Like over the long term, it's like Google investing in Linux because they see Microsoft making a shitload on, on Windows and being like, if we invest in Linux, it's a free OS it might take a chunk out of this like big competitor that's kind of extracting a lot of value from us. So I know this was like a, this is like a big narrative in, in, in 2021 was Solana as the basis for a lot of financial transactions and for the pla places that an exchange could go build at DeFi, that DeFi might get really, really huge on. And then you get the financial system rebuilt on Solana. I think realistically post the FTX implosion, because FTX was a big supporter of that narrative that, sort of died a bit and on solana you started to see activity on nfts and gaming and people were starting to pay attention oh well maybe it's not going to be you know used for for that but it's going to be used for at the, the nfts were were, were blowing up at the time so my, my, my question to you is uh on the financial side what has happened over the last year or 18 months that people might not be paying attention to that is proving out that you're getting closer to everything that you just described. Cause there obviously there were a lot of roadblocks there. I think like the hardest part has been like grinding for TVL and volume. Those are the really, really tough businesses to run. Like one is one we we're like, I'm heads down optimizing the network, but there's like startups like Phoenix, like margin Phi, like drift Zeta, et cetera, that are like running these like systems that are doing all sorts of trading environments, running markets and are grinding for PMF and competing across the board, right? In the bear market with everyone else for traders and stuff. And they're slowly growing. You see like Phoenix, Phoenix, I don't know if you guys look at Ellipsis, the central limit order book that was built mm -hmm. by a couple engineers like over the last six months. They're volume to TVL ratio is like 30 times higher than Uniswap. It's just insane how efficient they are. And this is because it's a highly optimized central limit order book. Like the compute costs on it are like way, way more faster even than Serum and like the, the old school central limit order book. It's easier to use for devs. And they've done like a meticulous job optimizing that. They just like, they've been doing a really, like really amazing job, but the volumes are still small. Like we're talking like one to 5 million uh, per day. So these are tiny things, but are like not zero, right? Like that are that are growing. It's really tough to compete with Ethereum there because the way that Ethereum DeFi works is that people deposit 
a bunch of tokens that they don't want to sell, that they kind of have a very long position on and collect yield on them. And they just kind of sit there. They're not very capital. They're not optimizing for capital efficiency. They're just optimizing for long-term preservation of like that exposure, right? To that, to that coin or that, or that thing. So if you're like a big Aave holder, you don't really care like how much it costs for, or how much your capital could be gaining somewhere else, right? Because you're not going to sell your tokens, right? You're just going to keep them. Yeah. You're going to deposit them in that protocol. You're going to keep them there and get whatever yield you can get because you're like maximally aligned with that. And Ethereum being first and kind of leading DeFi summer and generating so much like market cap across the board there is really, really tough to compete. Produce like a, a one-click, you should move your TVL from an Aave to, uh, to an equivalent on Solana. I've always wondered why more people don't go down that path of trying to you know, make it just really, really, really easy to port over activity. Yeah, I think like Jupiter actually is working on some of that, like uh, on, on working on like bringing like bridges and, and stuff like that that are instant on-demand bridge liquidity that you don't have to worry about like where it's coming from. You just kind of click one button. Um, yeah. People are, are like, the pieces are there. People are starting to realize that's a way to attract users and, and grow their business. And they're adding those user like uh, UX improvements. Everyone is fighting for this. Like all the L2s, et cetera, right? Like everyone is trying to find like, what is a product that I can build to attract traders, which is kind of a fixed number right now. Cause it's maybe we're not in the bear market anymore, but like we are not really in the bull market either, right? We might be shifting the winds are shifting potentially, but like that's a zero sum game where everyone's PVPing each other for that like activity. We and get like, a bad rep, totally. No one wants to be like us. Yeah, <laughs> not an attractive space. But I, I hear you on the hard. on the attracting TVL and attracting flow thing. I mean, we and I go back and forth on this. My sort of geopolitical view on crypto is that in its current form, crypto is a fantastic solution for emerging markets. It provides dollarized, you know, checking accounts, banking, uh, you can earn yield on your dollars. If you live in a place like Argentina or Iran or Venezuela, you can, you know, you can effectively have a U.S. dollar bank account. Um, however, I think a lot of the developer activity in the West, you know, at the cutting edge is focused on applications that aren't necessarily needed in the West. So I think it would be kind of an interesting, interesting thought exercise for people building financial applications on a chain like Solana to, you know, think about how could I just create basic DeFi primitives that are beautiful and easy to use for people who actually need them. I'm not sure the market is ready for like a, an, an a central limit order book for options trading. Yeah, I honestly think that as soon as a stablecoin bill passes Congress, you will see a massive dramatic shift within like two to five years of of like U.S. converting from current financial systems to crypto-based ones. Like, I, I think there is just a massive regulatory roadblock right now. Everyone knows this technology is better. It's easier. Like, all the APIs are easier. I don't know if you've ever been a dev and tried to, like, connect to PayPal or Stripe. It's like a pound of flesh in a firstborn to, like, deal with, with the mess of setting up, like, merchant, like, much easier but like it still sucks compared to like i just generate an address with a private key and i'm good to go <laughs> right like that's it <laughs> what what technical perspective is, is that 
is it a technical issue or is it that they don't want to make it easy? Uh, the networks, the way that the U.S. financial systems work are all around these like s compliance silos, like around AML and, and stuff. And like credit cards are kind of like the way that you interact with users. But credit cards themselves are are bizarre. Like when I do a credit card transaction, it's equivalent to me sharing my private key with the merchant. <laughs> yeah, and then and then there's like this massive process to like figure out if the merchant did a like somebody stole the private key in the process and did an invalid transaction. <laughs> it's bizarre, <laughs> right? Like if you step back, yeah, you step back for a second and be like, "What? <laughs> Who would build this?" <laughs> so like, uh, there's a lot of problems with how this stuff works right now in the U.S. and it's all based on like. KYC AML silos. If and when we get a stablecoin bill and like we can start actually using this technologies, I think it'll explode. You'll have like your bank accounts will take USDC deposits across a bunch of networks, like just like exchanges do, and like people that will like kind of forget about wires and all this other stuff. So, what are you doing to make sure that stablecoin activity occurs on Solana? And why is Solana better than Ethereum for stablecoin usage? Um. Well, it's cheaper and faster, and there's some use cases where that matters, like checkout UX, especially like coffee shops, like settlement where you're like waiting in a line behind people. You really don't want to wait 20 seconds, right? Like for stuff to to clear. Fees are also kind of a suck. Like if it's a bad out, like it for the middle class in the United States, they're not going to care about extra 20, 30 cents or a dollar. But like, if you're talking about an aggregate, it's a really bad outcome to shift to a technology that is an aggregate more expensive for finance because this touches everyone in the U.S. and like it's a regressive tax. It's just like, like, not everything about like technology is like supposed to reduce costs, make stuff more efficient, right, and better. So like, I don't see. Congress being super supportive of something that increases financial costs, uh, like for the majority of Americans, like something in Solana definitely will decrease it, right? You can do like, huh, you can do like a trade on, on Jupiter that'll multi-route a trade for like five cent trade <laughs> <laughs> because they can touch 50 different markets and find you the most liquidity across a bunch of markets for five cents without incurring any additional fees. That's so actually like, a really good response to and sort of a criticism I had in my shit post, which is sort of like, you know, finance settles T plus two. So high value Wall Street transactions settle T plus two. So I've kind of always thought, who gives a fuck whether it settles in 13 seconds or, you know, 400 milliseconds, it's still just a massive improvement. You're saying for low value transactions, yeah. it matters massively. Yeah, like you're absolutely right. I didn't think of it that way. Credit card checkout has to be done under two and a half seconds. And the fees have to be cheap enough to where like it's cheaper than it's like comparable to Visa's like internal infra costs of all their databases and stuff to where like if they switch their infra to this, their bottom line does not get impacted, right? Like because they're a profit driven company, they're never going to do it. If their costs go up by 10, they will get skewered by every Democrat out there, if the user, if the human costs go up, like to, to their consumers go up by a factor of 10, like <laughs> there's just no way that would fly. And like, that's a bad outcome. Like everyone, 
should kind of intuitively agree that like finance is moving numbers around computers. It's a regressive tax on the entire economy. It should be as cheap as possible. Like it, that's a win for, for like the entire world if we reduce those costs. I mean, I think, I think Visa also just sees the writing on the wall that that business model is going to be very they're, tough. Move, move they're awesome. In, in, like, in her, yeah. yeah. Providing credit and underwriting risk and stuff like that, that's real value. You got to do work. You got to figure out like how to manage that. That's awesome. Like I, I hope they thrive and like create like massive success for everyone and like have like an awesome way for me to get credit USDC, right? When I need it <laughs> in like a very simple way out of my wallet and, and that would be awesome. So like, I, I hope they, they crush it. And, uh, but like, we need we need the stuff to actually be for this stuff to go mainstream. It's really really hard for it to happen in the U.S. until there is some mm. some actual stablecoin legislation. It's coming. They'll do everything else uh, before they do the right thing, but eventually they'll do the right thing. So you're playing the long game here, and I think I heard on another podcast that you're talking to Visa a little bit. Um, at the yeah, the fun- the foundation. Uh, has worked with them. Visa did a bunch of research across a bunch of different blockchains and uh, they like Solana's performance and costs as comparable to their infra costs. And like they are exploring basically, I think launching a whole cross-border remittance program using USDC and Solana. And remittance is like an obvious win where you're like competing with like Swift fees and a whole bunch of other shit with like 50 different banks <laughs> to hop between like any two points versus using USDC. It's just like such a direct win that it's it's so obvious that everything should run on crypto for, for like cross-border stuff that um, it feels like from their perspective that it's such a better technology that they can actually like gain market share and like prove this out as like a a win, right? Like for, for the company that that's really, really cool. Um, it's still like, I think people need to be like cautiously optimistic. We need to see these big companies get like at least like two to 3% of their revenue coming from crypto activity, like uh, a legitimate U S financial company. That's not crypto native. So not talking with Coinbase, but like anyone, PayPal or whatever visa wants to get like a few percentages of their revenue coming from crypto activity. That means that their shareholders are going to care, right? The boards are going to care. They're going to start investing more into it. And like, that's the snowball that's actually going to get us to like mainstream adoption. It doesn't, we don't have to get like 20% right out of the bat, but like just a few percentage points is, is significant. So the road to those few percentage points, I think, you know, you as a, as the core engineer of Solana and and the you know traders and investors who are long Solana tokens uh, have very aligned incentives, right? Because the worst case scenario is the same for for both the traders and the devs, which is a network outage in the middle of this yep. or a severe network outage yep. in the middle of of this you know period of sunlight and progress. So the stuff that keeps you up at night is probably the same thing that keeps you you know Solana token holders up at night, which is what what's going to happen. The next time the network gets pulled over, if ever. Uh, so, how do you feel about, you know, last year's issue 
being in the review mirror? Do you feel confident? Is, is fired answer part of that? Like what, 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 yeah. what makes you confident that the future is going to look better than the past? Well, like the past issues were all centered around like basically one uh, design decision that we uh, just didn't think hard enough on, but it's obvious in retrospect uh, when we launched. And this is to do with hotspots and like kind of those like kind of very large demand spikes. Um, for folks that don't know, basically Solana is a parallel virtual machine called SVM. It runs stuff in parallel. It's very, very cool. <laughs> it's, it's the bee's knees. Uh, so it can do many things at once, but there's other parts of the system that don't do everything at once. And you can think of one part of that system is like when you get a bunch of transactions and you decide what to run in parallel, like the block producer, the leader, like they, in Solana, there's no mempool. So the block producer gets as many connections from different clients and just receives a shitload of transactions and then tries to find the best parallel ones to run in SVM. Well, before we had priority fees and this like idea of localized fee markets, when there was a hot NFT mint, um, botters would like create as many machines as they could around the internet, and they would all submit transactions trying to be first to be in that NFT mint. So many that it would like exceed the physical limits of what these machines could process, sometimes like hitting like, 20, 40 gigabits per second of data. Um, so we had to fix that problem, which was switching to Quick, which is a, a Google internet, sta an internet standard built by Google designed for this kind of low latency communication, but with the ability to do flow control. So that works out. The second part is that like, even if you switch to Quick and you get a bunch of transactions, you don't want botters to create a shitload of machines and then just all be the only ones submitting data because you're still dealing with a big pile of connections. So then we had this idea to do quality of service where if you have some stake, you're guaranteed a certain amount of traffic. You don't have any stake, you have a best effort on every machine that has stake to take some of their bandwidth, right? And, and, a, and a give it to non-stake nodes. So if you have like an entire network of 2,200 Solana validators, each one of them allocates 10% of their bandwidth to non-stake nodes. You would have to attack all of them at the same time to, to prevent any non-stake transactions from going through, right? So that, that's a cool solution. And then once you get all this data, you got to sort it. And this is where the localized fee markets come in, where the way that SVM works, the way it creates parallelism is that Developers have to work a little harder in Solana. They have to tell the network which parts of the state they're going to read, which parts of the state they're going to write. You can think of these states as like buckets. And when you start creating transactions, you take them, take the most expensive ones and you start filling up buckets based on the state they touch. And as soon as one bucket is full, you, you basically delay all the transactions that touch that bucket and you fill up and you continue pulling the highest expensive ones as long as it doesn't touch that full bucket, right? Does that make sense? Okay, you can kind of visual it, visualize this, right? Every transaction has a bunch of stuff in it. You put the stuff in buckets. As soon as one is full of shoes or whatever, <laughs> you can't take any more transactions with shoes. The shoe mint is full. How do you decide how, like, when something is full? What, is, what does full mean in that context? This comes from, uh, like... Even if you have parallelism, when something all wants to mint the same NFT, 
they're all touching the same state and you cannot parallelize that. There's nothing you can do. No zero knowledge magic, no L2. It's called a database hotspot. Everybody wants the exact same thing. Uh, there's no solution to this. So you can, the only thing you can do is you can limit it. So there is only certain amount of st like transactions that can touch the same state in a block that can, that can be scheduled, but a block can have many multiples of these. So you can have like five different hotspots or whatever, or four. So if there's a hotspot, like a hot NFT mint, you fill up that hotspot first with the highest paying transactions that all want to touch that NFT mint. And then you're done. Anything else that's once that NFT mint is delayed. Yeah, sir. I guess um, my question was a little bit more of, and this is just out of pure curiosity. Is that concept of full orchestrated by the chain or the validator? Is that the yeah, it's yep. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's 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 basically defined by the block. So you can think of it as part of like EVM gas limits. We have like uh, like single thread limits. Like we have account write limits. So if you have a single account that you're writing to, which is that NFT, the thing that defines that NFT mint, you have to fill it up up to like 12 million compute units, even though the block is 48 million compute units. Compute units. But as soon as you hit 12, you can't add any, anything else. So you have all this other block space for all this other shit. So it's very rare that you have like an NFT mint and a liquidation and all this other stuff in the same block. But that does happen, right, for now. But like, What's cool is that like as the cost of hardware decreases every two years, uh, we basically get twice as many cores for the same dollars. So that's all we need to add more hotspots, right? If you have one core that we're using for SVM for hotspot, next year we can have two cores, right? So now twice as many hotspots, we go from four to eight to 16. And at some point, like we will hit that, we will eventually, no matter what the load is, unless human activity for demand for block space goes up exponentially, which it doesn't. <laughs> I wish it did, because then <laughs> the, we'd have- We think it will. Yeah. We think it will. We think it goes back and forth. Like we've debated yeah. this on the podcast before, just as an oil trader, um, what happens is oil gets discovered in a location and then you have to pipe it to refineries. Yep. But usually when you discover oil, there are no pipes. So then there's this big race to build pipes. And the first person to build a pipe makes a bunch of money and then pipes get overbuilt and then pipe space drops to, you know, bargain basement prices and all the pipeline companies go bankrupt and then more oil is discovered and then the pipeline companies resurrect themselves and make a bunch of money again. Like in a, in a sense, blockchains are like that because blockchains are the pipes, right? So some blockchains were built a while ago. People didn't really want to use them. And then suddenly, you know, 2021 happened and everybody wanted DeFi and NFTs and there wasn't enough block space. And now there's too much block space. It's just going to keep oscillating back and forth, in our opinion. And so, you know, we we think we're primed for a huge cycle of block space demand, which is why it's interesting to the talk to talk to you know you. You're building it. You're literally laying the pipes. So, I mean, that's the hope, and we'll see. And like, obviously, I want that to happen too. But we need like, I don't know what those use cases are that will drive so much demand. You have stuff like Star Atlas, which is a game. They're doing more transactions per day than like. ETH, L1, or Polygon, right? Like, it's just one game. Uh, the way they built it is to use the chain as much as possible for all their events. So stuff like this could explode, but, like, the question is, like, is it, like, in the absence of block space, would it still, would Star Atlas still exist, and would the users care? And if the answer is 
yes and the users wouldn't care that still enjoy the game the same then it's not like it's being filled up with like traffic that is is like critical right like it's not like the oil is being used for driving food and like growing food and like stuff that's really really important we're like burning it to mine bitcoin right? <laughs> like there's superfluous usage and then there's like required usage i don't know if there's going to be so much required usage that we run out of block space do that kind of differently it's almost like a intransigent minority situation where as long as you have enough re requirement for block space, then you're going to have a lot of superfluous activity on that chain as well, because it's just going to work better to do everything in one place. It's like what I what I view the the normal traditional systems that we use. There are some things that are required to be built uh, in a certain programming language, and then there are certain things that are just done that way because there are certain things that are required to be built that way, right? And so it's you know, it's, it's sort of a, the, the goal is to just increase the amount of activity that's required in some capacity. But I think the reality is that the majority of it will be superfluous. Like it will be things that aren't necessarily required to be done on chain, but are done on chain purely because you get easier access to the things that are required. And that's a little bit of what, of what, you know, I'm, I'm hoping for and what I'm looking for is that you get these things that move over. Eventually block, like block space is created by computers computers get twice as cheap every two years, it's going to increase no matter what, right? There's some there's some weird like networks like Bitcoin where block space is fixed for religious reasons, but even like Ethereum post dank sharding, like the improvements that, that are landing in like maybe like three, four years, they will get them to a point where like they will be aligned with like hardware costs. It's just inevitable. So we're going into that future where like we're going to have access block space i don't know what we're going to do with it we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what happens so let's say let's say that avi's worst nightmare comes true or or favorite dream i'm not sure which uh and you have a bunch of superfluous block space getting consumed for no reason so let's say that a bunch of people decide to spin up really basic computer games like asteroid and pong yeah. on Lana just arbitrarily consumes shit tons of block space. Is that siloing, you know, fee hotspots mechanism you described earlier strong enough to withstand an onslaught yeah. of random crap like that? Yep. Yeah, we saw that like live. There was a helium IoT migration. They were minting like a million NFTs. Mad Lads launched at the same time, which was like a classic hotspot based mint. And then you had like a bunch of random stuff, oracles, all that stuff worked without without a hitch. It's a matter of how many concurrent, like what's the network currently configured to is like to handle about four of these concurrently. Um, and that they may sound like a little, but like when you're talking about 400 millisecond kind of intervals, all four things happening at the same time around the world is very, very unlikely. Like it, it, it's just like really, really tough, right? Like most people like human time frames, oh, this all happened with the same half hour. That's like eons for a computer right like that's not at the same time right like so like uh yeah we have we have enough and like within two years without doing anything it'll be eight simply because the cost of the hardware will drop we can validators can add more cores and like so from my perspective like that's just kind of like the relentless march of of progress in moore's law if that ever stops we should all be building bunkers and <laughs> 
like stocking <laughs> stocking blues and guns and not really worrying about crypto anymore or only worrying about bunker coin <laughs> i had a question about you know just now, now that i've gotten introduced to your community via twitter and how much they care um i i wanted Please to ask be nice just to, i hope folks that are listening from solana community just be nice to people it's cheap kindness is super cheap no, actually, I'm actually really impressed. Like, I, I love your community. I had no idea that they were this passionate and committed. And I wanted to ask you, how do you build a community like that? Like, you're obviously passionate, passionate about the technology, but, you know, I'm not an engineer. I'm not in these hackathons. I'm not in the room. Like, what? how do you create this? So many L1s have tried and failed, but you you succeeded. Or basically everybody but Ethereum has, has failed. Uh, yeah, this is um, really weird. I think I have some instincts that I learned from being like an uh, like an open source dev in the '90s and trying to like find other like-minded people that were like into like hacking on Linux over the weekend. You gotta find like your niche, your nerds, uh, and like I think you have to be like you have to invest in building something that you're really interested in. And I'm really interested in optimizing this thing, and I can talk your ear off about like all the cool optimizations we can do and people that are into that stuff can see that I'm really interested in it. And like, I'm not trying to sell them on it. I'm just genuinely like a, a super performance nerd. And that's like, I think the the start of it is you got to find like your tribe, how big that tribe is going to be, who the hell knows, but like, you got to be genuine and passionate. <laughs> that's like, those are the key parts. And I would worry about those two above anything else and trying to grow it. I think where other things fall over is when like people try to do it in like some kind of artificial way. Like the earliest that we really started building a community is when we really needed um, the test net up and running. And it was a hard process. And, and weirdly like stuff that, that, that adds friction in that community building part also creates stickiness for the tribe. Uh, we had, we literally asked people, go find a local data center. Not a lot of people have done this. Go like get a box there and install it and set it up and like maintain it. And that's a very much higher friction thing than run a node on AWS. So the people that we were able to convince in those early days to go do that are obviously far more stickier than like people that ran in to incentivize test that nodes on AWS. They ran it once, got their points and then left, right? Like. If you actually spent the trouble building a computer, right? <laughs> and like geeking out on specs and like calling your local like data center, right? That's that's like barely has a website and like figure out that you can go put it there. You're gonna be committed, right? So that that kind of like weird friction adds like creates like in some cases creates your tribe. You can't really make it artificially. Like, I don't think you can create it artificially. It just like there was a reason for that friction to exist because we really needed cheap egress. We needed cheap internet connectivity. There's no way you're going to get it at a cloud. So people like understood why they were doing it and like saw the positive outcome. And our tour to Seoul was very generous in terms of like tokens and stuff distribution. That that I think created some uh, like stickiness too. Your community has stuck with you through some incredible yeah man social <laughs> volatility like. I don't know if Shaquille O'Neal is into like high performance, uh, you know, coding, but 
but <laughs> yeah and name a list of celebrities have been in and out and it's it's so fascinating to watch i'm i'm mystified and amazed by it frankly same it is a mystery to me i thought we were going to be dead like more than once <laughs> and like somehow like i think folks are sticking around and really see like the value of what we're doing and it, it's awesome speaking of building something yeah. awesome if you had to guess what Solana's product market fit is going to look like in, you know, one to five years, is it, is it the phone? Is it DeFi? Is it something else? Like what, what do you think is going to be the next big smash hit? I hope, uh, it's like something like helium where they have like $5 letter data plan, IOT devices that are like doing the whole crypto economic loop, right? There's demand here. They give you more rewards that more boxes show up. It's awesome. Like I think as from like a 50 foot view, it's like the perfect like application of crypto that's creating value for like end consumers that everyone that I talk to, every like congressperson that I talk to, like, look, it's a $5 data plan. <laughs> like, that's good. That's good for my, that's good for my constituents. That's good for everyone. <laughs> so I like, love it I, too. Why the fuck yeah. hasn't it caught on yet? What, what's going on there? Like, uh, I, I've loved it for a long have time. You, have you have you used it? Is it is it is it usable in a yeah meaningful way? In Miami, yeah. in Miami, it's usable. You get five dollar data. It's backs to T-Mobile, so you can't tell whenever it's like using T-Mobile connection or or that one. So they're rolling it out. I hope they can go national soon, and we'll see if they can like take a bite out of like a big big national provider. So that's one of those like Hive Mappers, another one, but that's more like harder to think about. It's uh like mapping data that they're collecting. Like you could, after data set, build a Google Street View competitor or like train, like Tesla trains cars. You can train like AI. So there's like a bunch of cool, really in products you can build on top, but it's not as like visceral, like as as like mo reducing costs for mobile. Um, I want to see more stuff like Helium I don't know what that is, but I really want to point to like something that my parents can use and tell them if you use this, use a Solana and it's cheaper or better than something, some alternative. So like, I think with finance and banking, it's going to take a while. It's clearly better, but like, I don't know, maybe within five years, Congress passes a law. Within five years, we have like USDC based wallet accounts with yields. It's better than banking because you never get overdraft fees. You never get monthly fees. You have all this transparency and stuff. That that could be like, I think, an easy one to point to. But that one, it's just like law and finances. Uh, my theory is that like we're going through the process of like software eating the world, right? Like natural process. It's now starting to eat places where governments and humans have a wanted control right like finance is very touched to government and uh it's like uh there's a lot of tension there right like people don't want to give up control over stuff <laughs> but like it's inevitable like within 50 years can you imagine like banks still run by like ten thousand people like trying to figure out all this stuff by hand <laughs> like it's so crazy yeah. right like there's no there's no way <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're fighting it pretty hard right now. Yeah. I mean, just to your point about finance, the fact that a financial transaction settles in two days for you know a typical two business days, not even calendar days, for a you know for a high value 
you know, Wall Street type trade is incredible to me. In the world of zero interest rates, who cares? But, you know, if, if your short term interest rate is above 5%, trillions of dollars of capital are being held up all over the world for two days. Now, if you could just let that out, how much value could be created? In theory, a Solana could do that if it just replaced existing financial infrastructure. But like you said, there's some people who don't want that out there. So when you talk to uh, when you talk to Congress people and regulators, especially in the wake of what happened with uh, you know SBF making everyone upset about all of this, um, how do you how do you how do you cool the jets in Washington? I mean, how do you first it? of all, a lot of folks are super smart that are involved in government that may not seem like it. Uh, they're very smart, but there's also a lot of politics and politics is populism. It's like trying to build a narrative and like sometimes it, it's kind of stupid. <laughs> like people try to like snipe each other or whatever. Uh, that's the theater of it. But under the hood, very, very smart people are, are trying their best, right? Because they have to like fight these other counter narratives and like stay relevant and all this stuff and raise money. It's a system that's very competitive. So like I... I'm very bullish on it as being like a robust system to get the right people eventually to do the right thing. I think it's much, much better than like any alternatives out there, uh, but it takes time. Um, so the most important narrative you can show folks is like, this is like a product that your voters will actually benefit from. Helium is like my go-to example. The finance ones are harder because you have like, Wall Street Journal will publish a totally incorrect estimate of how much <laughs> how much terrorist activity uses crypto, and then you gotta be like, no, that was wrong. Yep. This this is there's here's all the counterpoints. This is how why using a public immutable ledger is the dumbest place to do any kind of crime. <laughs> and then they get it. They need like that those bullet points and stuff. And then there's like people with like. Warren, I think, I don't know. She hasn't, she, I don't know what, why, what's driving her internally. I'm actually quite curious to find out why she's so anti-crypto. Is it because this is her base of power is the financial committee and that she wants appointees that can, can have human control over the banks? Or does she really believe that there's value that is being created there for, for like consumers? Like you got to figure that out. And that part, I don't know yet. But most people are smart. Crypto is a technology. They get the benefit of it. They can explain that those benefits. And eventually, eventually the right thing will happen. It's kind of, it just takes time. Speaking of the right thing winning, I want to, I want to wrap up by asking you why, why is Solana going to crush Ethereum in your mind? Why is Solana the right thing? Why is Solana the right thing to win? Crush is like, it's very, that part, I don't know. Like, I think, okay. like, Ethereum, it, like, had awesome success. It was first to market with a smart contract. And now their momentum is driving them towards a particular part in this Pareto-efficient curve of trade-offs of what a layer one blockchain should look like. They cannot re they cannot change themselves to Solana, right? Like, there's it would be really, really hard for Ethereum to rewrite everything and become Solana. Right? Like just the way that the ecosystem's moving, that piece of code and everything else, they're moving towards this like multi-layer model. It's fine, right? 
we also like because of my, the way my brain works and my passion how i like kicked off the project solana's moving into a different spot spot in that pareto efficient curve we're going to build a single layer one that's can host up as many applications as possible to the point that there should be it should be more expensive for you to take an app and run it on your own app chain than to use solana that's it should it should be like economically irrational to do that you will still do it for other reasons, but there should be no economic reason to do that. Whether that, which one wins, who the hell knows? This is up to the to the PMF gods, the whatever, right? Like, I don't see a world where like somehow Ethereum loses and Solana wins because of that. I think you're going to see like probably ebbs and flows of some applications being built on Solana, some on Ethereum and stuff will shift. And who knows, maybe Solana will be 90% of the world's transactions will happen on Solana, but 90% of the TVL will be on Ethereum. Who won? I don't know, right? Like you, you kind of, you cannot, you cannot really tell what, what, like what that is. Um, my core thing is that like people are using the chain, they're building apps on it. They're building stuff that consumers want and like creating value. If we get that right, we have a shot of being of beating Ethereum, crushing them, right? Like whatever. Yeah, I, I asked in the most inflammatory way possible, but I like I like the sentence that I can now quote tweet and just tell everybody you said, which is you're economically irrational if you use Ethereum. I'm just gonna eat. <laughs> no, I said it's no, economically I know, I know. irrational to use an app chain versus running an app on Solana. It's gonna get it's gonna get more retreats the other way. Love it. Okay. <laughs> do it. You you can yeah. you can say that. <laughs> no, totally. I, I really appreciate you spending the time uh time with us today. This was I mean, you know, I, I, I sat I sat here and I listened for most of it, but I, I feel like I learned I learned a ton. Uh for sure. Hearing you speak and, and Jonah had such some great some great questions in there. So you know Thanks this for, has been thank this you for awesome. sharing a really well articulated video with us totally that was i learned appreciate a lot it. too i i appreciate uh, it kind of blown away i've got to go back to the drawing board now thank you guys for having me we're, we're all working in open source software we're all kind of on the same side so like the all, all the details that really matter over the long term yeah.